Commence primary ignition. Depend greatly on our own point of view. You must unlearn what you have learned. I am looking forward to completing your training. Welcome to Coruscant Community College, a new podcast that focuses on studying Star Wars as text. I'm Craig Dickinson. And I'm Matt Leader. Today on the show, we'll continue our series of in-depth examinations of the Star Wars films, with a deconstruction of Rogue One, a Star Wars story. So as we did with the prequels and Solo, we're going to be breaking down the movie, uh, focus on its aspects, uh, the ones that we covered in season one, and share our general thoughts on the film and its place in the larger Star Wars canon. So one thing that I wanted to just bring up right away is timeline-wise, because we are really kind of continuing our series on the prequels. Uh, People don't necessarily think of this as a prequel, but it is, uh, is that it is set six years initially, and then 13 years because there's a big jump after Revenge of the Sith. So we know that eventually it ends up, you know, 20 minutes, an hour before A New Hope, but that's where it starts. Uh, So we are chronologically moving forward. So let's go ahead and talk about cinematography. Matt, what did you, what were some of your favorite things about cinematography for this film? Well, I have to start with the end. I know you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Which is the Darth Vader scene at the end, the lighting, the color, how it starts in shadow. And when he ignites his lightsaber, the glowing red is just kind of perfect as far as cinematography is concerned. I mean, we already have talked quite a bit about how red is kind of the color of danger, of evil. And you have that deep shadow, you can't see him. And then when the danger comes, uh, it's just like a perfect little moment of cinematography but I think it's kind of the highlight of this movie. Yeah, I, I agree. I had, a, I had a couple of things with that one. Yeah, we can totally start with the end because it is one of the the signature moments of the film. I think a lot of people's first thing they think about when they think about the, the film. Yeah, just the fact that you you can't, you hear him first and we'll talk about that a little bit. I, I just love that. It's, it's almost silent and then you hear the breath and then you see the single blade and you're just like, yeah, it's on. Like this is the end for you guys. Uh, so much, yeah, it's just a great scene. Uh, but uh, a couple other things that I wanted to pick out, uh, especially this time I noticed, is the the Chirrut Imway fight scene is that there's a lot of extreme close-ups. Mm-hmm. They do a great job because he's blind and you know he's that he's using his sense of hearing that they they tie the sound effect and an extreme close-up of what he's hearing. You see the foot of the stormtrooper move, a bunch of different stuff, and then they zoom in on his eyes just to let you know yeah he's you know he's using he's using that sense instead of instead of sight to pick those out a lot kind of continuing with the american and mid shots a lot more in this film to again focus on performance we kind of talked about that starting with uh revenge of the sith that like these are kind of character pieces there's a lot of characters we have to get to know so it's interesting that they 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 give us the opportunity to to, to really meet these characters quickly uh with some some close-ups I also think that the Death Star is a real focal point in a lot of the cinematography. The way that they frame the Death Star, you get a sense of its size in a way that a lot of the other movies you don't. We have that line in A New Hope where Obi-Wan says, you know, that's no moon. 
Uh, but I, I feel like you're still lacking a little bit of the scale where um, like the model work, whatever they did with it, I don't know if it was CGI or model work, but it looks fantastic. And you get such a, I think there's one shot in particular where uh, there's a couple Death Stars that are like flying by and you kind of see them in proportion to the Death Star. And it gives you a sense of scale uh, that some of the previous movies don't. Also, one of my favorite shots as far as composition is on Scarif towards the end when the Death Star comes to Scarif and you see it kind of looming up over the horizon of Scarif. And you just know that it's about to uh, blow our heroes up. And the kind of dread that the characters must have felt seeing that, you really, for me, I, I get a more real sense of what the Empire what uh, Tarkin was talking about when he talks about how this is a weapon of fear. If you saw the Death Star, if that were real, that would be absolutely terrifying. And, you know, there's that clear analogy to weapons of mass destruction that the Death Star is and the kind of uh, light work that they do when Cassian and Jin are on the beach. And you see in the background, it's not quite a mushroom cloud, but it's clearly an analogy to a mushroom cloud and the screen gradually gets wider and wider uh, until everyone just disappears. And I, I think that there's some real fantastic work uh, around the Death Star in this movie. Yeah, no, I, I agree. The sense of scale in this film uh, is very powerful. I, I had that those same kind of things written down. The first reveal we get of the Death Star, it's kind of like, hey, here's a Star Destroyer and then it pans back and you can see that it like there's something putting a shadow on this mm-hmm. uh, and then it's a tiny bit of, because that's all that will fit into the screen of the Death Star when they're loading the dish on. Just, yeah, the scale. Like, but this is something to be feared for sure. And I also had the the explosion at the end and how it kind of looked like a sunrise almost or a sunset. You know, it's it's absolutely beautiful and terrifying at the same time. So there's oh, obviously this it's rife with symbolism. You know, we could talk about it's kind of the beginning of the rebellion or the sun setting on the empire. Um, there's lots of different things that you could you know interpret from that, or you know, kids can, can interpret from that. That's a discussion that you could have easily in class. I mentioned a couple. I think I mentioned in our original cinematography episode about how uh, the Death Troopers marching in triangles was something that that jumped out to me. That was something again that I, I look for. Just a really cool staging thing, just to see how they're how they're marching, not in a straight line, but they're kind of staggered that way. I also wanted to talk briefly about the natural lighting indoors, kind of continuing with what we saw in Solo. It's a different cinematographer. Uh, I had looked this one up too. Um, I think his name is pronounced Greg Fraser, and he's been nominated multiple times for Academy Awards. He did uh, Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, he's going to do the upcoming Dune and the Batman, but he also did, I thought this was cool. He did three episodes of the Mandalorian from the first season. He did the pilot, uh, the sin chapter three, which is obviously a phenomenal episode was supposed to be the end with all the Mandalorian showing up and, uh, chapter seven, the reckoning. So I guess, I think those are both Deborah Chow episodes. So, but yeah, lots of shadows as well. I really enjoyed how uh, we had the reveal of Mon Mothma coming out of the shadows and then Bail Organa as well, which I think the symbolism there of like, you know, they're kind of hiding out and then they reveal themselves only when it's safe. I thought was really cool. Uh, anything else on camera work or anything else cinematography wise you want to talk about? No, I, I think we can move on to sound. Uh, what'd you have for sound? So I have to start with the soundtrack. 
Michael Giacchino uh, does the sound, uh, does the music in this one. He again is an Academy Award winner for Up. Does you know virtually all the Pixar films, tons of Marvel films now, the MCU stuff. Um, I first knew him from Alias, an early J.J. Abrams show, and then of course Lost. Uh, and I, I one thing that re- always struck me is, well, yeah, that sounds like Giacchino. Is the end. Uh, it's kind of a montage. There's very minimal. I don't think there's any dialogue. Maybe a little bit here and there, a little bit of sound effect, and it's very just kind of slow, um, melancholy music. Like that's such a Giacchino thing, um, and it works. It works in Star Wars. It works works everywhere. But it was like, yeah, those are kind of the the signature Giacchino things. What about you? I also had the the music at the end. All the music on Scarif, I think, is pretty good. For me, I I, I think what's unique about Star Wars in general, and Giacchino does the same thing, is is the use of the motifs and you have the the Jedha music. And like in my mind, I will forever associate that music with Jedha. <laughs> and, and so I think, uh, and there's also, uh, I feel like a little bit of a, a Rogue One theme. I believe it's also in the very opening of the film instead of, I shouldn't say the very opening, but I think when the title card comes out, yep. it has... I forget what it's called, but it's like the Rogue One theme. And yeah, again, we can all hear it. Yeah, and it's 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 one of those things that I I feel like the music in Star Wars really does a good job of of using that because you can always refer back to it with that kind of uh, the the musical light motif. And so, just a couple new motifs that I noticed, I really liked the Jedi music. Um, I also really enjoyed the mask respirator on Saw. Because I feel like they kind of let a little bit of the Vader sound bleed into it, but it's mixed in a way where you can't quite tell whether it's a true Vader sound or if it's something different. And it actually reminds me of something that Peter Jackson did in Lord of the Rings in the Two Towers when Gandalf comes back from the dead. Uh, They actually mixed Saruman's and Gandalf's voice when he first comes back. The point was, is that you weren't really sure who it was at the beginning uh, to kind of give this little bit of tension to the audience. Uh, and I feel like they were doing the exact same thing because just as you mentioned in the Vader scene, you hear Vader first. And as soon as you hear Vader, you know you're already dead. And so in this you know, case, you have that Vader respirator sound and it brings this sense of danger, but you're not quite sure <laughs> if Saw's gonna be a good guy or a bad guy yet. And so I thought that was like just a little brilliant piece of sound sound design right there. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause yeah, he's a lot like Grievous was kind of a, a proto Vader in, in a lot of ways. Uh, even though he's, I guess he's a contemporary, um, but there is some definite, some Vader elements there. Uh, I love what you said about the light motifs and, and a lot like John Powell used, you know, John Williams's music in a, in a brilliant way to mix it with his own. I think Giacchino did the same. One thing I did want to also talk about was the stinger right at the beginning. It's such a jarring thing, especially I remember seeing the film and we were wondering, like, is there going to be a crawl? How is this going to work? And it's like, nope, totally different thing, guys. We're just going to, you know, this loud sound's going to pop up and, and yeah, we're doing something different. Yeah. And there's, I mean, Jin has a theme, a new theme. Jin Russo does, but so many more old time, old original trilogy themes keep showing up. There's Rebel Fanfare. First time we see Yavin. What I really liked this time I noticed was that the Force theme plays when Bail Organa shows up. I thought that was kind of an interesting choice. 
it's like, yeah, the force is putting these things together. Somebody has mentioned that this isn't my first, you know, I'm not the first one to notice this, but the Imperial theme from A New Hope is in this as well. When when Vader is in the tank and they kind of they start emptying out the tank, he shows up and then you get the Imperial March. So that, you know, the, the new Imperial theme uh, as he walks in to meet Krennic. And so that's, you know, it kind of becomes Darth Vader's theme as we go through. And then at the end, the Diasiri shows up again. Uh, Day of Wrath, you know, it it plays almost almost exclusively. That's pretty much all it is. When when Jin and Cassian are trying to pull the the data tapes, it just keeps coming. And if you're listening for, it can get almost annoying because it is so repetitive. Like this is such an important thing: destiny, destruction. It's it's the symbolism is overwhelming almost. I also thought for uh, for vocal sounds, I really like the Death Troopers, and that they almost sound alien. And I'm still not 100%. I think they're speaking another language. They could be. And then I really like the call over the loudspeaker for General Sindula. You know, one of many Rebels callbacks and references uh, in this film. Okay, so uh, what did you think about the performances? Yeah, I would have to say that they all fit kind of in the sweet spot. I thought the performances are great all around in this film. Very strong uh, direction in that in that regard. The biggest thing I wanted to talk to you about in this one, because I do want to touch on the dialogue, because there's a lot of great dialogue and facial suppression stuff, is Tarkin. So, in your opinion, does the virtual Tarkin work? And do you have any ethical concerns about that? I think that the CGI is pretty good. I do feel like there's a little bit of Uncanny Valley where he looks kind of real, but not real. And I've heard different people say that they were totally convinced that that was a real actor. I I was not. I, I saw that it was CGI. It didn't bother me. Um, I do, as far as ethical concerns, I believe um, believe the, the actor's family signed off on it. So, you know, I, ethically, I think that's fine. I do kind of struggle a little bit with the fact that there's elements of Star Wars that are so tied to the original trilogy and they can't seem to shake free of it. Did we really need Tarkin? Did we really need uh, young Princess Leia? You know, in a little bit, you know, in a sense. Uh, but I think that for me, I guess it's it's it ties to a larger issue that I have, which is this kind of sometimes an over-reliance on nostalgia and connection to the original trilogy when it's fine by itself. And I think that, you know, when I first saw Tarkin, I wasn't expecting him to turn around. Me too. I was, I was expecting just the reflection in the window. And I would have been fine with that. It doesn't really bother me that he did and that he's CGI because we have CGI characters all the time. They're not typically human, but we do. So I, I guess it, it didn't really bother me um, a whole lot. How about you? Yeah, I, I kind of feel the same way. I, I, I was totally happy with him facing out the window. And I thought that that, that would have been great. And just using a minimum, I was very surprised they used him as much as they did. And I agree. I mean, the, the family did sign off on it. And so it's, you know, I think that ethically that kind of takes takes care of, of that issue. I guess I kind of land on the side of it's Lucasfilm pushing the boundaries of what's possible technically again. Yeah, that's what Lucas had always done. And so I feel like it's pretty much in the spirit of what Star Wars has always done. Where that's going to go, I, I can't say. I, I applaud the fact that they tried uh, to do something like that. 
And I think that if you were going to do that, then yeah, it makes sense to do that with an original trilogy character that is, you know, and Tarkin's one of those guys too, you know, who's not really in that much, you know, he's, he's a, he's the big bad. He essentially is the big bad in New Hope, but he's overshadowed by Vader, something fierce. He's not the one people talk about. I remember as a kid, I didn't know his name. And so it's kind of like you get, it's one of those things that kind of fills in the gaps a lot like, you know, Boba Fett showing up in Mandalorian. It's like, okay, well, this is who he always was. I mean, I like it. I just, it, I know it's a thing that's kind of controversial. And so it's something that I wanted to hear your take on and, and hear what our listeners have to say about it as well. I do kind of wonder what you think about, I mean, what I would call an over-reliance on the original trilogy. And this happens in Mandalorian too, when Luke comes in. And you could argue to some extent Ahsoka, but really with Luke, you know, the original characters, because I feel like Mandalorian is such a standalone story for most of it, really. And there's references to other larger Star Wars canon pieces. Um, but I do feel like it kind of takes away a little bit of the standalone nature of it uh, when there's, you know, I, I guess, for example, um, when the Jedha scene comes up and they're walking through the streets of Jedha and they bump into those two characters from A New Hope. <laughs> right. Dr. Evazon and Ponda Baba. Yeah. Yes. I didn't need that part. I didn't either. <laughs> Especially when he's, you know, essentially quoting his line from, from A New Hope. That, that to me crossed, crossed the line yeah. uh, as far as, you know, fan service. And, and just kind of going overboard. The Tarkin thing I think is a little different because it adds to the characterization of him and just really, it lends him some gravitas that he wouldn't normally have. The other stuff, yeah, that's it. And that just shows like how tricky it is to kind of walk that line. I think that honestly, I think the characters in this film were strong enough that didn't really need to have any of that. I loved seeing again, and it kind of goes Mon Mothma's same kind of deal. You know, she, they just recast. Um, it's interesting to see what the, the characters that they recast and which ones they didn't. Like General Dodonna is recast. Why they could have CGI'd him too, or just not have him in it? Because that kind of almost takes me out because he doesn't really look like the guy from A New Hope at all. But Mothma, I buy. I love that Bill Organa. That's probably my favorite inclusion in this is that they brought Jimmy Smith back, and I think that that was very much under the radar. We didn't really see that coming, but it makes sense that he'd be there. Yeah. So just kind of going back to the characters in this film that are specific to this film, everything K2SO says is funny. It is. <laughs> I think he is probably my favorite character in this film. And so, and I'm writing down examples of what, you know, dialogue was. I pretty much just keep going back to K2. You know, congratulations, you're being rescued. Um, you know, I, it's funny. I've, I've used it a multiple times this year with um, providing feedback for kids when they're writing argument essays and stuff saying, I find that answer vague and unconvincing. I've literally typed that on their, on their papers. It's, it's such a great line. And it's, yeah, he just, it's just, just deadpan. The delivery is perfect. Uh, did you have any specific dialogue that you wanted to talk about? I did want to say that I think the acting across the board is very good. You know, we've, I think the last two movies that we've watched, the acting has, has been at another level. Um, K2SO is my favorite character as well. I think that uh, a couple of lines, Cassians, I've been in this fight since I was six years old, uh, just giving you a sense of what the rebellion means to him. Uh, my favorite line that isn't from K2SO uh, is towards the end when Cassian says, do you think anybody's listening? And Jin says, I do, there's someone out there. And I just thought that was kind of reflective. Like if I had to pick one line 
that was trying to show the theme of the movie, I would say it was that little interaction. Uh, because a lot, especially towards the end, a lot of the movie is kind of about finding a little bit of hope and building a spark of a rebellion on that. Right. Yeah. Rebellions are built on hope. It says mm-hmm. it twice. I mean, it's great that, yeah. you know, the first one to say it is, well, Jin asks, you know, Aunt Cassie about that. And he says, rebellions are built on hope. And then later she, she echoes that. The, for me, my favorite line in, in the film is I'm one with the force and the force is with me just as a mantra. I, I just love the power of that character. I'll talk about it a little bit later. Oh, I can talk about it now. That really the force in this in this film is interesting that it's believed in by people that really can't tap into it in a way that Jedi can. So it's interesting to see that that side of it, the non-force users and then what their view, view of the force is. But I just wanted to come back to again to just Felicity Jones as Generoso is is phenomenal. Just they they do a great job of of close-ups on her face. A little scene that really that stood out to me was when she's taken back to to Yavin and they're talking about finding her father through Saw. And you can just see the emotions travel over her face, especially when, when Cassian mentions her dad. She's you can see she's visibly shaken by the memory of that. You know, she's given up and you see how um, when she talked about Saw that there's there's a story there. We don't really get that story that we know he abandoned her. He talks about that a little bit. Uh, because she became a threat, but she clearly has resentment toward him. And it's funny that that same kind of you know, saw is he's such a a strong character. He really invokes strong reactions. You see that with Mon Mothma too, when she's kind of like, yeah, we have to deal with him. And I just thought about that great episode in Rebels where he shows up, like the least over, he shows up a couple of times. And in her, his interactions with Mon Mothma before this absolutely makes sense that they don't work together right now. Uh, but they're kind of like, well, this is this is what we have to do. We have to pull in all all our resources. I'm just going to throw in the fact that I love that Vader has the A New Hope red lenses. Oh yeah, and that Krennic has a white cape because that just I think characterization wise, like, who are you, dude? You have a white cape. <laughs> like that that takes some guts to pull that off, but he does. So, um, setting and design. What's what stood out to you about setting and design? The first thing, and I wasn't quite sure how I would classify this, the hammerhead Corvette scene uh, in the Battle of Scarif, I think it's fantastic. And I was thinking about it, and what I love most about it is it's just an inventive use of, of something in the movie. There's so many movies where you have these kind of big battle scenes, especially when you have like planes or tanks or ships or something. And the side that wins, wins because of some arbitrary reason. And I feel like this little hammerhead Corvette maneuver is perfectly indicative of the desperation that the Rebels have, uh, their inventiveness, and their ability to kind of adjust to things on the fly. And I think that's just, it's so perfect for what the Rebellion is at that moment, which is this kind of scrappy little group who are just trying to cling on against this giant galactic empire. There's that element of sacrifice uh, that's kind of foreshadowing the Holdo maneuver later on, uh, which I actually kind of really like that there's this element of foreshadowing, even though Rogue One came out before uh, Last Jedi. Yeah, Yeah, it came out between the two. But story-wise, I I, I think it is, you know, just a nice little moment of, of that foreshadowing. And I, <laughs> I put it in setting and design because I, I felt like it's kind of a prop, sort of, you know, 
but the the ship models and the 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 character as far as how that maneuver in particular characterizes the rebellion i really enjoyed awesome yeah i i uh just wanted to point out a couple of things just that though i think the whole movie just captures the original trilogy aesthetic mm-hmm. that it feels like it belongs in that film and and leads directly into that so you know seeing yavin you know they they spend a lot of time on yavin going to that base and, and it feels like yeah this is almost outtakes which we'll get to almost an outtake of a new hope and in fact you know they do use outtakes from a new hope and it blends seamlessly I love that there are names given of all the planets. I'm just a nerd that way. So I love that they popped up on screen. It's the only Star Wars film that they've done that. So that was just fun to do. And, you know, when we're, we show these movies in class with kids, I always have to point out, that's, this is Tatooine, this is Hoth, write this down, write this down. Uh, and so it's kind of cool that they pop up for that, except for Mustafar, which uh, I think has always been a fascinating choice that you're just supposed to go. I think that, that that's Mustafar. Like you almost need to have that recollection from Revenge of the Sith and then get to see Vader's castle, which I think is a, an amazing design. And I wish we'd have seen it a little bit more in Rise of Skywalker. I know that's the location, but I think it would have been, in my opinion, would have been cooler to actually have more of the, of the castle. It sounds that we can kind of get the idea, hammer it down that this is in fact that castle. As far as props and stuff, um, I always thought it was interesting that there's like a stormtrooper doll, that there's like Star Wars action figures in a Star Wars film. <laughs> uh, and then the kyber crystals, you know, they play such a, an important part in this film. And I think, you know, canonically, this is the first time that's even mentioned, uh, at least in the live action films. I mean, it was in Clone Wars, but it's interesting to see that. Uh, again, you know, these are non-Force users. Uh, you know, it's Jin's mother that makes the big speech to Jin about why they're important. I also had the Kyber crystals written down, um, but I think the movie in general expands upon the Star Wars universe quite a bit. And this is bleeding a little bit into the galaxy, but uh, you know, a lot of it's shown through setting and design. Uh, the jail that Jin uh, starts out in, I think, is quite interesting. Um, we get a very small glimpse of it. Whatever planet uh, Cassian starts out on also feels like this trading outpost, um, kind of edge, outer edge, uh, outer rim territories type feel um there's just a lot more kind of expansion of like locations i don't think we've ever seen kind of a tropical beach location before uh, besides scarif and it continues the star wars trend of having one climate for the entire planet (laughs) (laughs) exactly but uh you know it's, it's just fun getting more star wars like more of the universe also with uh the kyber crystals and Jeddah. Uh, you, you see a little bit more of the colonialization that the Galactic Empire has, where they are looting, essentially, yep. Jedi temples uh, yeah. for fuel for the Death Star. And they don't really care. And you have this own, again, kind of proto-rebellion building in Jeddah, uh, which is probably more militaristic and more, I don't know what you would call it. Well, they're more violent. More violent, for sure. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, I just think that's really interesting to see something that feels natural to the world. I think that's good world building. Yeah, and it's a, it's a lot. Speaking of that, uh, a lot of real world locations in this. Iceland is for for Lamu, the planet at the beginning that they that uh, Krennic finds the Ursos on, uh, and Edu. Uh, Jordan is stands in for Jeddah. 
Uh, and then I've heard this one. A lot of people actually went and visited the the Canary Wharf tube station is where the is inside the security thing security station complex on Scarif. So that you could actually go and visit that where the um, the stairs are. Of course, lots of sound stages and and of course lots of things that are are digital. But that's a good mix. I think I I can't necessarily tell which one's not unless it's Mustafar. Then I'm like clearly that's not a real a real planet. But it feels it feels authentic. It feels real. So characters, um, things that we, a thing we haven't talked about. I mean, I love the, I love all the characters in this one. I don't think there's anybody that stands out. At, I go, man, I really don't care for that actor or for that that performance. Is there anything specifically you want to talk about we haven't touched on yet? Yes, and I did want to. I kind of saved this because I wanted to make a very clear distinction. I think the acting is is very good. The writing and the characterization, I think, is weaker in the beginning for some and stronger at the end. In particular, I think that Jin Erso has weak characterization. Not that she's a weak character, but the characterization of her is is muddy. And I actually think it's really interesting because I think the opposite for Cassian. And kind of the reason I was thinking that is, you know, when we talk about characterization with our students, we talk about steel. Um, you can look at characterization for characters from uh, speaking, their thoughts, effects on others, actions, and their looks. Uh, but I would also add their choices. And for me, Jin doesn't really have any interesting choices that she makes in the first half of the film. And, you know, I think there's moments when we go in and kind of get a glimpse inside her head and like who she is as a person. And as soon as she makes that big speech in front of the rebel committee, that is very strong characterization for me. And then she has strong characterization through uh, the rest of the film. But when I think about Cassian, you know, we're introduced to him as this kind of spy on that, like kind of trading outpost in the middle of nowhere. And he straight up murders his informant yep. Yep. in cold blood. <laughs> like right. he, he didn't even let, like let him try and run away or, or do anything. Let him talk himself out of it. He just murders him, shoots him in the back, literally. That's really strong characterization. You get the sense that, oh, wow. This Cassian, he's an anti-hero, you know, he may be doing the right thing in the big picture, but he's also doing some bad stuff, you know, on the small scale things. And you get a better sense of that is he basically grew up, grew up in, you know, what the Galactic Empire would call a terrorist organization. He's been a rebel since he was six years old. This is all he's known. He has for him. There's no other choice. And I feel like there's really there was an opportunity for a really interesting dynamic between Saw and Jin, uh, and I, I kind of wish that we had seen what got Jin thrown in jail. <laughs> right. I wish I wish we would have seen more of Jin and Saw interacting, and I kind of wish they had taken out a little bit of the beginning of the film, and had Cassian kept his introduction, but had Cassian go visit Jin uh, on Jeddah and have Jin a part of Saw's team, but rebelling against him and helping the rebellion. Because we already know that that Saw doesn't really like the rebellion. He feels they're ineffective. I feel like that would have been a golden opportunity to build in some of that characterization that we see later on from Jin. Well, we don't get quite as much from her at the beginning. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no. now that you say that, like I, I agree with you. It does kind of feel like they, they switch places uh, that, you know, he is, Cassian is a very interesting character in the fact that he does straight up murder that dude. Uh, Ringa Kafreen is, is the name of that 
planet or outpost. Um, but yeah, he's like, he is not the good guy necessarily. Like he's a guy we're rooting for. Uh, he makes some interesting choices. You also see him where he's, you know, gonna again, straight up murder Galen Urso, uh, under orders actually, you know, from rebel command, uh, from the Lance command. Uh, but then chooses not to. And so we have some, you know, we can say it's, it's character growth and he does talk about it later. Um, you know, that we've all done things in the name of the rebellion, you know, saboteurs, assassins, all of this stuff. And it has, we have to finish this. Otherwise it doesn't mean anything. Uh, and I love that, that, that kind of makes him, you can see how he's kind of evolved, but I do agree that, that Jin doesn't really, she's kind of a cipher really at the beginning. She kind of just goes along. I mean, I think of, I think it's the honest trailer for the film <laughs> that just talks about how she just does whatever like the strong male figure tells her to do. Uh, and you see the examples of that, like her dad tells her to do this, Saw tells her to do this, Cassian says do this, and she does it until she gets to the part where she finally stands up and she's like, well, actually she's faced with a choice, right? She's the only one that heard the message uh, from her father. And so that becomes her mission. And I think that's where you know things, there's like a flip that switches. And so you could argue you know, that she has kind of just buried all of this stuff deep down because it's too painful to do anything else. You know, she talks about, you know, you don't see the flag if you keep your head down. She's kind of numbed out. And so at this point, she decides to, you know, to stand for something. And we do see her evolve. Um, but it is interesting that they're kind of, they kind of do exchange like two ships in the night. They kind of flip through, you know, one's much more interesting in the beginning and one's more interesting at the end. So that's a, I think that's some some great character analysis, and I and I do think that you know overall the characters in this movie aren't fantastic, and not that I don't love them. I love Chiru, and I think he is a great kind of uh, secondary character. Obviously, he's not the lead, uh, but he's a ton of fun. Uh, I do wish we got a little bit more of Baze. I think obviously we love K two S O. Bodhi is a decent uh, side character as well. Uh, you know, you can see some of his motivations and stuff. Out of kind of the, our core group, I think Baze is probably the the worst done by because we just don't get, I feel, as much from him. He kind of plays off Truett a little bit, which is fun. And I think that comes from having an ensemble cast and um, maybe just not having quite as tight a script as far as crafting those characters. Yeah, and, and I can see I mean, all this stuff is is ready for a novel. You know, each one of these characters could have a background novel kind of explaining their journey. Like we know we're getting Andor, so we're getting Cassian's mm -hmm. background. Um, but yeah, you know, the adventures of Chirrut and Baze, yes, please sign me up for that. And more, yeah, more, more Jen Urso with her, with Saw, I think would be really interesting. I did want to mention before we move off this topic that James Earl Jones is back as Vader. So kind of going back to that nostalgia thing again, kind of, again, we add Vader. We didn't really mention the fact that, I mean, we love that Vader's in this, we talked about the scene at the beginning, but again, that's again, walking that kind of that fine line of, yeah, we need to make sure we have the original trilogy characters featured in this film, even if they're not, you know, part of the core group. And I think that's, that's all I had for characters. I think we covered it in all the other aspects as well. Do you want to move on and see if we have anything for the galaxy? Yeah. As far as the galaxy, um, you know, I think we already touched on it a little bit with these kind of civilian, as it were. Uh, people who are still in tune to the force a little bit, uh, especially Chirut, because you always get the sense that he is force sensitive in some fashion. And I don't think the movie's explicit about it. 
So I choose to believe that he is, maybe not to the extent that a true Jedi would be, but uh, he's definitely very in tune with the spirituality of the Force, uh, as much as you could say that it is a spirituality. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. I think that um, that's a thing that we, as Star Wars fans, tend to tend to put things in in, in categories and in kind of very in boxes that are very rigid. That you know you can use the Force if you can feel the Force, and that's just one thing, or you can't. But we know from several sources that the force is part of everything you know it's created by all living things and they're all connected to it in one form or another maybe that's in degrees would be a more accurate way in saying that it's it's either or right so he is whether he maybe he can't manipulate the force i mean i've I've heard many people say like i thought he would just use the force and flip that switch like that would be the moment where this happens no he can't do that he can't manipulate uh the force can't use it in that sense but be guided by the force, be in tune with the force. Absolutely. So I thought that was really interesting. And the whole concept, the guardian of the wills, uh, getting that, that you do kind of have these non-force users. Again, I'm kind of going back to that, but you know, I should say limited force users that are kind of working alongside the Jedi. I would like to hear more about that as far as, you know, culture tied to the Jedi. I love the, uh, couple of things, just some notes here. Uh, I love the U-Wing. I'm totally okay with the fact that I didn't see it any before this and that it existed just here, along with some of the other, <laughs> like the TIE Strikers and some of these other things. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. They they all used them up. Lots of new aliens in this film. Lots of classic aliens in this film. Two things that jumped out, like Borgullet is is one thing that was very, I don't know how to say different. this. It's very different. And that was a thing that I remember like screening this movie for my kids. I'm like, oh, they'll be able to watch this and Borgullet come on. I'm like, and eh, maybe I have to wait. That's a little frightening. Wait just a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Wait just a little bit more. That was the one thing I was like, yeah, that's the, you know, it's got the strobe effect too. And then it like, just looking at it, it's creepy. And then it gets on his face and you're like, oh, that's not good. I love the, the two tubes guys. There's um, Idrio and Benthic, the guys with the, like the tubes coming out of their face. Uh, and that one of them is actually in Solo. So there's a lot of stuff. It's kind of funny that the, you know, the Disney films kind of all share these, uh, these characters and with rebels too, you know, that guy showed up in, in rebels too, or at least Idrio did. Uh, and so they kind of reference each other as well as referencing the, the, uh, original trilogy. Anything else for, uh, that section? I do have, uh, some closing thoughts. Yeah, go uh, ahead. So, and I do want to hear your opinion on this too. I really feel like the first half of rogue one is more of an average film overall. You know, we, we, we talked about the weak characterization or, or, you know, weaker characterization, but I also just absolutely love the exploration of the wider galaxy. When Jin and Cassian are walking through the markets in Jeddah, I wanted to stay there. <laughs> I want yeah. to be able to go visit that at Black Spire in Disneyland. Uh, like, that's just such a cool environment. And that's what I, I think I love most about the Disney films, or at least that's that's the aspect or one of the aspects that I most love about them, I should say, is that exploration of the wider galaxy. And I think that's the biggest thing that, I guess that's the thing that I miss the most from some of the uh, later Disney films, is that it feels more boxed in than, than some of these movies do. Like Solo and Rogue One, they feel like you're really exploring this part of the galaxy you've never seen before. 
and, and sometimes in some of the other films, it, it feels like we're we're retreading ground. And so I really love that about this film is that it does feel more like an exploration of of new things that we haven't seen before. The second half of the film is a 10 out of 10 fantastic. I would watch that last half any day of the week, any time. Uh, I love that everyone dies at the end. You know, it's this beautiful, tragic story that, you know, oh, I, I was really expecting everyone to live. And no, they, they all die. They all get vaporized. And I love that. I, I think that it's something that Star Wars doesn't do nearly as often uh, enough that it shows the true cost. It shows the true fear that the Death Star brings, the desperation that the rebels have. And so for some of the parts that I felt like are, are a little bit weaker uh, in the beginning of the film, I think overall it, it averages out to a very good film that is weak in spots, but then just absolutely blows it out of the water in other moments, especially towards the end. The whole whole part with Scarif is fantastic. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I meant to talk about this earlier, but the cinematography, back to that just real quickly, uh, of the space battle of Scarif is so immersive. It's like they put a GoPro on the back of an X-Wing and you are in the, you are in the battle. It is so dynamic. It, on the ground is the same thing too. There's lots of just close-up shots where you feel like you're on the shoulder of the soldiers as they're running through the jungle and then uh, AT, ACTs are coming out of the, <laughs> coming over the hill and you're just like, we're all going to die. You know, it's very intense. The adrenaline's pumping. And yeah, it's such a ride. It just, when it hits the ground, that second half of the film, it is it just does not let you go until it gets to the end. And I agree. I also had that, you know, the fact that they all die. They kind of all have a redemption arc. A lot of these characters had something they had to, you know, either regain their faith in something or redeem themselves because they, you know, they were an assassin or, you know, he was an imperial pilot. All of these characters had this growth at one point or another, some more than others, but it's kind of like, well, you've accomplished your mission in life. It's time to go. Yeah. There's nothing more for these characters to do. They serve their purpose. And I agree that, like that might be, that might be the bravest thing that Disney has done is kill off all these characters. I you agree. Because we don't expect that to happen. Like there's a lot of, remember lots of people having theories. Well, maybe they'll be frozen in carbonite or they'll be off in some corner of the galaxy. We just, you know, just didn't happen to see them. No, no, no. We're not going to do that. We're just going to kill them. And I think, I mean, that makes sense narratively. Like we'd said you know, earlier, it should be Luke that shows up in Mandalorian season finale. There's no reason not to. These people should die. There's no reason they shouldn't die. That's why it matters so much. You know, and it lends that, uh, you know, it lends that sense, sense of uh, gravitas to a new hope. When like, this is why we have to get those plans. People died for this, and more people will if we don't. We've seen what happens. Completely agree. So, some other just kind of one-off things that I thought um, that I really liked about this is: um, Have you read the the prequel novel Catalyst for this? Um. You know, if it, I have, I don't quite remember it. So it's it's um, it's mostly uh, Galen's the main character in that one, but you get a lot more about Galen or so in Krennic's relationship, and the fact that they were essentially friends uh, for a long time. And I think that that lends um, some really interesting notes to the characterization, especially of those two characters. Um, you know, Jin's in it a little bit. It's been a while since I read. It. I think Saw's in it. He must be. Um, but mainly, it's those two, and you get a lot more about the the background of the. Uh, of the Death Star's creation. So I highly recommend reading that. Speaking of the Death Star, I love that there's a rationale for the chain reaction. Like, I never thought that that was a problem. Like, it's a giant moon-shaped space station. Of course, there's going to be a hole in it somewhere. 
but I love that they're just like, you know, let's take that and amp it up. And like, yeah, it's going to blow up because he made it that way. Yeah. I thought, you know, for, for Galen to that whole speech about him, you know, I'm just going to play my part so well and, you know, do the one thing they didn't think it was going to do, just act like I'm a beaten down guy. And the whole time he's sabotaging. That was a great uh, inclusion, a great twist. Um, And then the last thing I had was, I remember right before uh, Last Jedi came out that there was talk about there was going to be flashbacks and how revolutionary this was going to be in Star Wars. And then I'm watching this film the other day and, hey, there's flashbacks in this film. (laughs) So, you know, a year before Last Jedi comes out, we've already done this. So I just thought it's new for Star Wars here and I don't have a problem with it. It was just it was a new thing that we were kind of like, well, you know, that didn't happen in the original trilogy. So that's not a Star Wars thing. But kind of it kind of is kind of already happened we had a prologue in this film too which we you know just briefly touched on that we have never done before and that's okay you know it still fits uh fits the star wars paradigm so any other final thoughts before we get out of here no i think that's it all right it's a great film watch it if you haven't if you have questions comments please let us know uh but as we close we do want to just say thank you so much for listening Uh, please check out our teaching resources at coruscantcc.podbean.com. And if you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Instagram at coruscantccpod or email us at c3podfeedback at gmail.com. And if you haven't yet, you can join us on our Facebook group, the CCC Common Room. It's a safe place to debate, collaborate, and ruminate on all things Star Wars, teaching, and film. You can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash c3 common room course on community college because the imperial academy isn't for everyone this podcast is not endorsed by the walt disney company or lucasfilm limited it is intended for entertainment educational and informational purposes only all names sounds and any other star wars related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of disney and their respective trademark and copyright holders the official Star Wars website can be found at www.starwars.com. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Coruscant Community College unless otherwise indicated. Nothing more will I teach you today. You've taken your first step into a larger world. We will watch your career with great interest. what you have done. Coruscant Community College, because the Imperial Academy isn't for everyone.